Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Richard Pops. He's the chairman and CEO of Alchemies. Pops is one of the senior most executives in the biopharma industry, having joined Alchemies as CEO way back in 1991. The company is known for its technology around making long-lasting injectable drugs, especially for mass-market chronic diseases like schizophrenia and diabetes. The company is worth about $8 billion. I've had many conversations with Pops over the years about his company's strategy and industry issues. He's a knowledgeable insider, having been part of industry and FDA negotiations for more than 20 years. He's thoughtful and intense. I always enjoy the conversations we have. This particular conversation was focused on Alchemy's effort to fight one of our country's most troubling public health threats, the opioid addiction crisis. Alchemy's markets an injectable drug called naltrexone that's sold under the brand name Vivitrol. It's the only anti-addiction drug approved by the FDA that interferes with opioid receptors. It's designed to work by blocking the feeling that makes people get high. The Alchemy's drug has an undeniably important role to play in this crisis. The day we recorded the podcast, September 28th, Pops had just gotten back from a meeting at the White House led by Chris Christie, who's leading a presidential committee tasked with addressing the crisis. Now, before we get into the conversation, some context is required. Vivitrol got off to a slow start in the market since winning FDA approval in 2010. Alchemies has gone up against an entrenched competitor, buprenorphine, marketed as Suboxone. The competitor is a less harmful opioid drug that helps wean people off the ones that are most prone to abuse, like Oxycontin, Vicodin, Percocet, or Fentanyl. No one had done a head-to-head comparison of the two main anti-addiction treatments, Suboxone and Vivitrol, until recently. But just this month, uh, researchers from Norway published work in the Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry from a randomized study of 159 people with opioid dependence, which showed that Vivitrol met its goal of demonstrating that it's not inferior, which means roughly equivalent, at helping people reduce their opioid dependence. Media has started paying more attention to the opioid crisis this year, and Alkermes, among others, has taken some heat. The New York Times and NPR published some hard-hitting works that wondered whether it might be profiteering off this heartbreaking national tragedy, limited data to support its drug's efficacy, and perhaps some overly aggressive marketing. It is true that Alkermes has made political contributions to officials that had a hand in the 21st Century Cures Act, which put an additional billion dollars of government resources toward combating the opioid epidemic. Alchemies has also done some consumer-focused advertising about Vivitrol in places like Boston and New York, and some targeted marketing outreach to drug courts and criminal justice authorities. It's also true that Vivitrol sales are growing. They grew by 40% in the second quarter, according to Alchemies. The drug had sales of about $66 million in the quarter ended June 30th. It's fair to ask questions about what Alchemies is doing, like with any company. But fundamentally, in my view, it has a drug that can be part of the solution, not part of the problem. There are other companies that overmarketed opioid painkillers. There are distributors that kept opioid painkillers flowing like a river through their supply channels, turning a blind eye to the abuse. There are unscrupulous doctors running pill mills. There's a lot of blame to go around. As Richard Pops and I discussed, 
one company or one government agency can't fix this problem single-handedly. None of them exists in a vacuum or a carefully controlled petri dish. This will take a long-term push from multiple players, doctors, public health authorities, law enforcement, the pharmaceutical industry, and others. I hope that by listening to this conversation with Richard Pops, you'll come away with a better feel for this complicated societal problem and maybe some thoughts on ways the pharmaceutical industry can do its part. Just quickly before we dive in, a quick plug. If you like this show, you will love my subscription newsletter, Timmerman Report. Go to TimmermanReport.com to subscribe, either as an individual or with a group sharing license for your company or university. The next episode of The Long Run will feature a conversation with Elias Zerhouni, the Executive Vice President of R&D at Sanofi. He's an immigrant from Algeria who went on to a great career in academia at Johns Hopkins, then as an entrepreneur, and as the Director of the National Institutes of Health, all before coming to Big Pharma. We talk mostly about science as a global enterprise and how immigrants are essential to making the U.S. the number one place in the world for biotech and pharma innovation. That will be another serious conversation about an issue that affects everyone in biopharma and really everyone in the country. Now, join me for the long run. Today, I really do want to talk about opioid addiction because this, uh, I think, has become um, a major issue in the public debate over the last year or so, um, after many years of really being neglected. Um, Your company uh, is playing a central role here as uh, one of the very few that has a drug to treat opioid dependence. So can you just um, start by... um, telling me a little bit about reminding our audience what it is that you have, why do you think it's important? Well, first of all, it's good to see you and thanks for doing this. We have a really unusual focus at Alchemies. We're one of the few companies that is is animated by the idea of going after some of these very, very large diseases that are very poorly served but are often stigmatized patient populations. No Serious mental illness is an area of focus of ours. And addiction has been for many years. We began actually with alcohol dependence. And then as we watched this public health crisis of opioid dependence rise, we focused our energies on on the opioid dependence problem too. And not only do we have Vivitrol in the market right now addressing it every day, but we also have a very active research activity in understanding the neurological basis of addiction and how one could potentially even ex- extinguish addiction. Now let's just back up a little bit for those unfamiliar. Uh, your drug, it's naltrexone, generically named, and uh, it's marketed as Vivitrol. It's a once monthly injection. It binds with uh, a receptor that blocks an addiction pathway. Is that right? Think about it this way. Your brain is decorated with opioid receptors, highly adaptive. We make our own endogenous opioids, the enkephalins, the endorphins that you know from running. So there's, you can think about over eons why it would make sense that you could make your own natural painkillers and why it might be a, a very adaptive to have uh, compounds that stabilize mood as well. But these opioid receptors, when, when, when patients' are, are, brains are subjected to exogenous opioids, like something as gentle as codeine all the way through hydrocodone, hydromorphone, uh, morphine, heroin, fentanyl, and all that, the propensity for addiction is extremely high. And in our country, what's happened is that we've really over-prescribed prescription opioid pain medications 
and it's led to this huge tsunami of, of opioid addiction around, around the country. In the brain, what, what our drug does, it's a once-monthly formulation of an opiate receptor antagonist. So it binds that opioid receptor in the brain and prevents relapse to opioid dependence. And now this product started with treating alcohol dependence. Correct. Uh, wasn't really a market there. You, but you looked and you began to see the trend, the trend that has now become more clear uh, to many other people. I, I think uh, Governor Christie's uh, commission on opioid, uh, the opioid crisis identified from 1999 to 2015 uh, a quadrupling in the number of prescriptions and a quadrupling in the uh, reported numbers of, I believe, either opioid addiction or uh, drug overdose deaths. Um, this is really startling, uh, a quadrupling that occurs in about a 15-year period. You, you saw this before many, many others. What did you think you could do? It's interesting because we've been so steeped in this public health crisis for the last approaching a decade that it almost seems like everybody should be aware of it. But put another number on it, Luke, is that 60,000 people will die this year from opioid overdose deaths in the U.S. That's more than died in Vietnam and the Iraq war put together. So the expectation is that next year the number will be worse than that and it will continue to grow. So we were struck by the fact that, number one, there are only two approved medicines for the treatment of opioid dependence when we got in, into, this, into this business. One was methadone, and we're all aware of methadone clinics. And the other was a drug called Suboxone or buprenorphine, which is another opiate agonist. Both of these are, are products that... that that maintain a physical dependence on the opioid, but substitute street-based or, or, or illicitly sourced uh, opioids. So there was a, from our perspective, from a pharmacologic perspective, we think those are very important drugs. But what was missing was the opiate receptor antagonist for patients who wanted to be detoxed from, from the opioids and maintain a physical state of, of that opiate blockade for longer periods of time. In addition, the National Institutes of Drug Abuse had been calling for a long-acting formulation of naltrexone since the 70s. We just happened to stumble on the technological capability to do it through our work we'd been doing in schizophrenia to make long-acting injectable antipsychotics. And that, that technology then was applicable to the treatment of opioid and alcohol dependence as well. And long-acting is important because you can make it into a once-monthly shot um, you don't have some of the patient compliance issues that Correct. you might have with, with drug addicts. Well, we learned this in, in complete elaboration in schizophrenia, where in the beginning, the idea was a, a once monthly or once every two week injection for schizophrenic patients might benefit a small subset of patients who are notoriously non-compliant. In the real world, it turned out that 70 plus percent of patients with schizophrenia are unable or unwilling to take their medication every day. So the outcomes, hardcore, whether it be medical or pharmacoeconomic outcomes, if you measure a group stable, quote-unquote, on oral medications versus randomized to go onto long-acting injectables, you see better outcomes. In, in uh, addiction, it's probably even worse because addicted patients or people, people with some substance use disorder each day are required to make a decision. Do I abuse today? which are all kinds of reptilian parts of the brain are saying, do that, or do I take my medication that's going to provide protection for me? So it's exactly the wrong conundrum. What, what's so powerful about the Vivitrol concept 
is that once monthly injections, give the patient that month then to work on other aspects of their recovery, psychosocial counseling, behavioral therapy. And then if they're back a month later, they get another shot. And then you have two months to work on that. And two becomes three and three becomes four and so on. How many of these patient people are in prison, jail? Or how many of them are actually out trying to hold down a job? Most. Most most of the people that are getting Vivitrol now are out in the in the in the in the community. But unfortunately, within opioid dependence, many people end up in the criminal justice system. This is in con- contrast to alcohol dependence. In alcohol dependence, many people don't end up in the criminal justice system unless they drive drunk or they, they get in some type of violent or, uh, encounter or something. The problem with opioid dependence is that you tolerize to opioids. So if you used to get high on five milligrams of Oxycontin, soon you'll need 10 and then 20 and then 40 and then 80. And on the street, a milligram of, of an opioid costs about a dollar. So an 80 milligram Oxycontin pill can cost $80. A bag of heroin costs $5 in New York City. So once a patient makes that, that transition to say I'm willing to inject myself, they're either gonna end up in criminal justice for one of two ways. One, through doctor shopping to get prescription opioids at increasing levels, or they're gonna be using illicit, illicit drugs. So you, um, you get FDA approval, 2010, you have to think about um, how we're going to market and distribute this thing. Um, who who makes the decisions to prescribe or you know buy this thing in, in any kind of volume? How, how do you how do you go about this? Well, this is the story of Vivitrol. This is why I say with a smile, Vivitrol is the gift that keeps on giving in terms of forcing us to develop what we think is an incredibly contemporary commercial model for pharmaceutical. Uh, products as complicated as Vivitrol. You had said earlier there wasn't a market for alcohol dependence. Well, there's an enormous market for, uh, the potential market for alcohol dependence. But in the country, in the U.S., we do not treat alcohol dependence with medicines. So the whole treatment infrastructure that we take for granted in so many other therapeutic categories simply does not exist. In the field of opioid dependence, there indeed was a, a treatment network that was entirely focused on dispensing agonist medications. This is what uh, Suboxone is good at. They got their their network. Correct. And the methadone, the methadone network was created by the government. And indeed, the government was helpful in creating the Suboxone network as well through legislation that was passed in 2000. And the government agency tasked with, with training doctors and certifying doctors for use of Suboxone, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, essentially spent a decade or more training doctors to use Suboxone. Mm-hmm. That's happening again now with the, with the passage of the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act last year. Uh, that legislation should now provide for further education in the next wave of, of, of treatment uh, evolution, which would be methadone, Suboxone, and Vivitrol. Because as you said earlier, there are only three approved medications yeah, in this in this field, methadone, suboxone, and long-acting naltrexone. Well, and it should be pointed out that uh, this is a complicated problem that doesn't lend itself to a single silver bullet. I mean, when I look at the clinical data on these drugs, it doesn't look like, oh, you can take one and it solves addiction uh, single-handedly. I, I think these are these are in the in the evolution of the neuroscience around addiction. These will be viewed as absolutely primitive instruments. And that's what troubles me a bit is that I don't see a tremendous amount of R&D from pharma, big or little, in this addiction space, in part because it's not a well-established market. It's a difficult 
place to get reimbursed. It's complicated logistically. There's a lot of easier places to develop drugs uh, for biopharmaceutical companies. We just happen to be compelled by the by the urgent public need. Well, okay, but now, so assuming that pharmacologic solutions are a part of the solution, along with fewer prescriptions being written in the first place, um, you know, lower doses, uh, counseling, uh, you know, uh, all, all of those things together, rewriting of clinical guidelines. Um, how? What's the what's the responsible way to get your product into the system so that it can put a dent in the problem? So I was I was invited yesterday to speak at the the president's commission on opioids. It's chaired by Governor Christie and includes Governor Baker from Massachusetts and Governor Cooper from North Carolina, Patrick Kennedy, uh, 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 Attorney General Bondi from, from Florida. And we talked a lot about this because the, the President's Commission right now is, has completed its interim report and its final report is due on November 1st. There's been a tremendous amount of work going into this to, to ask and answer that very question. What can we do? We can't wait for new pain medications. It might take a decade. What can we do right now to address uh, the building is burning? The, the, these 60,000 lives we're not going to get back. And our advocacy platform at Alchemies has been and always will be, and this is embodied in the, in the CARA legislation I mentioned before, patients should have knowledge of and access to all three FDA-approved medications. Data should exist and education should exist so the patient and their family can make a decision based on, on, on rigorous data which medication is right for them. Because the point is, there might be a point in time when, when a patient is not ready to go on Vivitrol. They're not ready to go through detoxification and live a drug-free life. They may be more suited appropriately for using Suboxone or Methadone at, at, at that time. Now, to clarify, patients, before they go, can go on Vivitrol, they have to go through detox first. Correct. Because otherwise they could suffer real withdrawal symptoms uh, if, by going on a drug that prevents that high. It's going to knock, the, 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 knock the, the, the agonist off the receptor, and it's going to block it, and you're gonna, you would go into, into withdrawal. And our label talks about, about the, it's actually indicated for prevention of relapse to opioid dependence following opioid detoxification. So and as have, simple as that sounds, much of the treatment system in the country has no ability to do de detox. They've never really done detox because they've really been agonist focused. Let's just swap somebody from street sourced uh, heroin or, or prescription method uh, pills onto another replacement medicine. Now, um, you've taken some heat over the last few months um, from a couple different media outlets. Um, I really don't want to talk about other people's reporting, but um, the, the argument has been that, you know, you guys made some donations to political campaigns or to um, local officials in order to uh, get your drug um, in, in, integrated into, um, you know, the treatment paradigm um and this this the implication is that sort of you know you're you're greasing some palms and and trashing the competition saying things like well you know that you're you're swapping one addictive for another ours is better we don't really have a head-to-head -head clinical trial comparison between yours and theirs to to really say that um to what how do you respond to to that criticism well, I, th I think that the criticisms have been bordering on wholly inappropriate. 
And what's so striking about those criticisms of our company is that is that they're factually incorrect in, in, in large part. And also there was really no strong effort to really hear our side of the story. The fact that the, the, the treatment community is polarized over agonist versus antagonist therapy, I find to be striking. You don't see this in cancer or in rheumatoid arthritis or in other diseases, where there's almost a, a, a conceptual divide between the philosophical approach to treating the disease. It should be based on data. We, as a pharmaceutical company, we can only make claims about our, our, our medicine that are based on data. You know that. Mm -hmm. The people who, who are trying to argue don't understand that. We do not make comparative claims versus other medicines because we don't have comparative data. And it's also, more importantly, I don't think it's actually an appropriate comparison. The person who wants to be detoxed and on Vivitrol has a different objective in their treatment than the patient who wants to stay uh, taking methadone or Suboxone. And both are valid. The question is, what's appropriate for you as a patient? It'd be like going to a chemotherapy, uh, an oncologist, and say, you know, we use one type of chemotherapy. This is the one we use. And unlike any other area of medicine that we've been exposed to, in the treatment of addiction, the treatment today, the status quo is the treatment that you get is almost entirely dependent upon what door you walk in. If you go to a methadone clinic, you get methadone. If you go to a Suboxone doctor, you get Suboxone. It's like uh, authorized dealerships. It's like you want to buy a Chevy, you go to the Chevy dealership. You go down the street if you want a Ford. And we fundamentally disagree with that. And we absolutely, we integrate, we, we interact with policymakers. We, we, we interact with people in the community. We interact with people in the criminal justice system. And the reason is because they're demanding that the status quo change. People are coming to us because we've had a certain status quo for the last however many years. And 60,000 people are going to die this year. But you, you are having some business success. Absolutely. I mean, the, the market is crying out for something. Clearly, The reason you're, you're, you're facing quarterly... opposition is because Vivitrol is growing significantly. And it's, ups it's upsetting the orthodoxy. And the orthodoxy does not like being upset. That, uh, that orthodoxy, Suboxone, still something like a billion-dollar-a-year seller, I believe. And I, I think that this also went off uh, patent and they got some other film version that's you know extends the patents for a little while longer so you know we end up still paying full price and what by the way what is the price for their drug and yours well let me first of all let me just say that that you won't hear us say negative things about suboxone suboxone is a mainstay treatment national institutes of drug abuse nida all kinds of, of folks there's, there's excellent research on on how one can use buprenorphine in order to substitute for illicit opioids and stabilize patients and save people's lives. I know that from our own personal experiences of dealing. We've been in this field for a lot of years now, Luke. We've met a lot of patients, a lot of parents, a lot of families. A lot of Vivitrol patients were pre-patients and did, did well on that. We've met people who've been, had tremendous success on Suboxone. We've had other people who have not. So it, this whole point of, of saying which is better, it, it, it's like which chemotherapy is better? Well, it depends on what tumor type you have. Well, but we, we're having a conversation too in this country about value of pharmaceuticals. And so the price is an important part of that equation. How much are we paying and how much and what are we getting that's in right. terms of an outcome? Yeah, so, that's appropriate. so Suboxone is something like three to $500? For the month. medicine. But remember, though, there, there, there's a lot, of, there's a lot of, of commerce done around treating people with opioid addiction because there's doctor visits, there's the drug itself, there's, there's, there's 
all kinds of things that go in the totality of, of looking after a patient with, with uh, addiction. Vivitrol, its, its list price is $1,300 per month. Most commercial payers are paying somewhere around 900 or so. But Medicaid, which is where much of the businesses and certainly the growth has been, it's between five and $600 a month. And I think this is a really important point, Luke, because I really feel like the, to prevent relapse to opioid dependence is and can be a life-saving phenomenon. Any new oncology drug that's approved now, as you know, a targeted genetic oncology product is going to be priced between fifteen dollars and $20,000 a month. And our medicine is, for Medicaid patients is $500 a month. And I think it's incredible value. I think that we, we really don't get pushback on price per se, except for the people who are trying to tear down Vivitrol in general. It's just one of the things that they'll bring into the mix. But in, we will defend the price of, of Vivitrol full-throatedly. And there's data across the country in pilot programs all around the nation of people demonstrating in their own ecosystems whether it makes sense to use Vivitrol. And the answer is increasingly yes. But what about the outcomes? You know, we have high-priced cancer drugs, and we can argue about whether we're getting good uh, value for a drug that extends your life by, say, four to six months. Is $100,000 worth it? I mean, you can do your, your model on that. Um, so let's say your drug is anywhere between $500 and $900. What are we getting for that? How many people are breaking their addiction? As I said, the drug, the drug is not indicated to break addiction. The drug is indicated to prevent relapse to opioid dependence. If you get that shot every month, you will you not relapse to opioid dependence. The problem with the treatment system writ large, now this is separate from Vivitrol, is that we're not actually giving these patients, well, first of all, 10% of people with, with, with opioid addiction in the country are getting medication-assisted treatment. And what we're not doing is providing the services and the care in a chronic way to assure that they can stay adherent to their medications, whether it's Suboxone or Methadone or Vivitrol, with psychosocial counseling to drive those outcomes. Let, let me back this up. You said if you take the, the shot through your six-month course... It's you, not a six-month course. There's no, there's no limit on it. It's not in, it, its label is not restricted by time. But it, that's often how it's been tested and administered often, isn't it? Not necessarily. I wouldn't say that. that I don't think there's a central tendency in that regard. People do, uh, uh, from a clinician's point of view, they do what they think is appropriate for the patient. Okay. But in terms of clinical trial data, things that we know. Uh, there was a, a phase three study in, in Russia, uh, randomized to placebo. Um, but we're not getting 100% efficacy with Vivitrol. No, it's all driven by dropout, Luke. So it, this is this is serious mental illness. It's just like the same thing in schizophrenia. If, if you have a, a patient and they get a Vivitrol shot, it is going to quantitatively block those opiate receptors in their brain. But in the real world, what happens is that many patients don't want to stay in treatment because they're addicts and they want to go back and use again. Or there could be other reasons why people don't continue with their therapy. They can be financial. They can be circumstantial in their lives. And this is, this is one of the tragedies in serious mental illness in general. Do you know the average duration of, 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 of prescription duration in schizophrenia, of oral medications, is like six or seven months? It's a chronic serious mental illness. Patients take their medications for six or seven months, relapse, end up in the hospital, start all over again. We do an incredibly poor job of making sure these patients can adhere to a treatment regimen over long periods of time. If they do, their long-term outcomes are so much better Yet we don't do that. Well, and even when you are effective at blocking the receptor, you know, the bio interrupting that biochemical effect, um, 
there is also that behavioral component. I mean, it's like pe- people are, this is part of their behavior. They're used Absolutely. to, they're, they're used to going around the corner to get that high. One of the things you learn from going to drug courts, which I've done, or AA meetings, or, 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 or narcotics anonymous meetings, is that they talk about people, places, and things. So irrespective of the medicine, if you're going back to the same people, places, and things you did before, you're going to relapse. Unless you have a, a sober life to return to, unless there's a, a way to live your life outside of a milieu where everybody's using drugs, you're not going to be successful. A job, uh, a supportive family environment, uh, counseling, Precisely. all, all crucial pieces of the puzzle. You can't just look at a drug in total That's isolation. Right. And we don't. And I, and I really think Alchemy's deserves a, a lot of credit for this because we've always thought holistically about the patient and we advocate holistically for, for, for patients when we, when we deal with policymakers. The way I describe it to policymakers often is that if you think of the brain, picture in your mind what a human brain looks like in that big outer cortex, which makes us so human, our drug is affecting in, in the brain, in, in, in the reptilian part of the brain, that, that craving part of the brain that says, I, I really am I'm, I'm seeking this substance. But cognitive behavioral therapy, other behavioral therapy interventions, learning, that's the human part of your brain. You can learn to do things differently. But it's hard to learn when you're in the throes of, of, of the addiction. That's why the complementarity of, of the medicine and the counseling is what leads to better long-term outcomes. And you've had some success making your case to certain drug courts, certain jurisdictions. You go to a place in Indiana, you've got opioid addiction, they're going to refer you to this. Um, uh, you're doing this on a state-by-state basis. Um, is there um, is there a right way and a wrong way to go about this? You know, some people look at this and say, "Well, why can't you just go to the physicians? Uh, they're the ones that are, you know, presumably making the decision on what to prescribe, what's best. They evaluate the data. They know their patients." We do, but I think your question is is influenced by reading that negative media that isn't true. Physicians drive this. We're, as a pharmaceutical company, we market our drug to physicians. But make no mistake, policymakers dramatically influence the milieu in which f- physicians operate. The other thing is that there's a whole network of criminal justice people that is separate from what we do. Judges talk to judges. Sheriffs talk to sheriffs. Police chiefs talk to police chiefs. And they, op- they, they adopt and propagate best practices. Because in the community... If you go into these communities and you see people, first responders who are reviving people with, with naloxone every day, and then they subsequently die because they're not getting treatment, these people are saying, we need to change what's happening in our communities. And they hear about a, a, a program in Barnstable on the Cape here in Massachusetts, and they say, boy, Sheriff Cummings is having, he put in a Vivitrol program. Let's try that. Then you hear about a drug court in, in St. Louis that's working, and those things start to propagate. And so what we've built in response to that is not, we don't market to, to judges, which is this argument trying to people make. We, we respond to information. We try to help propagate best practices. And we have policy people at a state level and a federal level. And by the way, I think this is, this is laudable and I think it's essential. And I think we're saving people's lives by doing it. Well, I, like I said, I don't want to debate other people's reporting. I do think there has been some unfair coverage because I think, you know, as a citizen, what I want to know is, uh, does this thing work? Here's what okay. you should be asking as a citizen. Why are people actively trying to withhold access to an FDA-approved medicine when an epidemic is going to kill 60,000 people this year? What is the motivation that, that says we need to spend energy to make sure the patients don't get access to Vivitrol? 
Well, what do you think? I think it speaks for itself. I think that people have ulterior motives. They have alternative economic or philosophical separate from science and data. And the world we live in is medicine, science, data, in a highly regulated environment, and that's where we're happy operating. But what about uh, the outcomes? You, you, you know, it is on you as the pharma company to gather the data to make your case to, to, for your product. So is there a long-term follow-up study? Like, can we, uh, you know, after 6, 12, 18 months where you can say, look, uh, a certain percentage of patients are able to get back to holding a job? Um, they've, they've weaned themselves off opioid independence. This, is, what, this is what's so interesting about now there's over 500 pilot programs in 40 states. And what's, as you know, a pharmaceutical company, even a smaller one like us, bringing data to one of these communities, they don't believe it. They want to test it in situ, in their own environment. So what, what we really encourage when people put in Vivitrol programs is, is to measure something. Measure recidivism rates, measure ER visits, measure total healthcare utilization, whatever you measure. And that's actually the data that's leading to more and more use of Vivitrol around the country. Now, be aware that in, just in the next few months, the results of two large studies that were quote-unquote comparative studies of Vivitrol versus uh, uh, standard of care, suboxone treatment, should mature and be published. We know that, that one is coming in JAMA Psychiatry in the next few weeks, and one uh, maybe even before the end of the year, a big uh, a NIDA sponsor study as well. So for the real data aficionados, there'll be more data that support the use of Vivitrol uh, and understand the context in which to use it. And how should we interpret this? I mean, we, you mentioned there's this big dropout rate. So, you know, we might end up seeing fewer than half of the Vivitrol patients are, in fact, um, weaned off opioid dependence. Some might look at that and say, gee, that's kind of so-so. Depends on if it's your kid or not. Compared to the alternative, I mean, the, the, it, it's. It, I think you, you can't be so abstracted from this, Luke, to understand that when you have somebody suffering from opioid addiction, which is a curse you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, by the way, because you actually you go from seeking a high to, to to trying desperately every day not to feel horrible. Uh, what do you do? And there's not many alternatives for them. Counseling by itself doesn't touch this addiction. You need medicine. So that's why MAT, what the people call medication-assisted treatment, is becoming increasingly the mainstay. And I think that's what the President's Commission and others are beginning to increasingly realize. 10% of people are getting MAT right now. We need to increase that number. And yes, it's a disease of, of significant dropout because many addicts end up relapsing. But for those patients who are seeking treatment, we have precious few alternatives, and the ones that exist are pretty good if they're used correctly. Is this one of these um, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situations? Because, you know, we talk sometimes about the pharmaceutical industry and its drug pricing controversies and its reputation. Um, I, I'm not sure if you um, were able to put a debt in the problem. Like we've got, we've got something like 2 million people. Um, who are, are dependent on opioids. No, no, we have 20 million. We have 2 million being treated. 2 million being treated. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's say we cut that in half. Let's say Vivitrol, fast forward five years, and you guys um, have rolled out this drug in a big way and actually reduced um, the incidence, whether it's number of people in treatment or, or overall estimated incidence. Um, there's, there's a huge segment of the population that would say 
that's not, they, they wouldn't see that something good happened. They would see a greedy drug company, you know, capitalizing on people's misfortunes. Isn't that terrible? Aren't you a, a terrible person, Rich Pops? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think that it's becoming increasingly clear. It was really satisfying yesterday at the White House in this meeting of, of, of key decision makers and key influencers on the treatment of opioid dependence in the country at this moment. NIH was there, NIDA was there, policymakers were there. I think that Alchemies and Vivitrol are viewed as a, a really important part of the solution to this, to this problem. So I, I think that part of the problem that the pharmaceutical industry has is that they've lost the public trust in that way. But I can tell you, you might have read a couple negative stories over the summer, but if you set your Google alerts to Vivitrol stories, 95% of the coverage that we get is incredibly positive, and 95% of the coverage comes from local media outlets recounting life-changing success, success, success stories in the communities. It's really gratifying. So, I mean, we feel, if you came to Alchemies and, and talked to the people, the amount of pride we take in the fact that we've gone after this when others wouldn't and have endured what we've endured. Remember, this product first got approved in 2006. We, we didn't intend to sell it. We gave it to a pharmaceutical company. They were said they were going to sell a billion dollars a year of it. We got it back two years later when they had sold $15 million of it. Wall Street said, leave it alone. We didn't even talk about it at our J.P. Morgan presentations for five years because we said we just have to keep it under the wraps, let it incubate, because we were, we were just so motiva- motivated by the fact that it saves people's lives. And we were getting testimonials from parents and spouses and brothers and sisters thanking us for what Vividrol had done. So we weren't going to stop. What we had to do is we had to change the commercial organization. We, it isn't a commercial product. It isn't where you put a, a bunch of freshly scrubbed salespeople out on the street calling on doctors with brochures. This was about fundamentally inculcating ourselves into this treatment system and trying to understand the places where Vividrol could, could be most effective. And interestingly, most recently, there's been this pull from the criminal justice and public health side because, for the reasons I said before, what's working on the street right now isn't working. Vivitrol has 3% market share, and it's going to do over $200 million of sales this year. It's 3% market share. It's just getting going, and the epidemic's getting worse. 3% on a prescription volume basis, yeah. but on a dollar basis, it's higher than that. Well, there's no other there's no other drug in its category, and Suboxone is still a much bigger dollar drug by far. But, uh, but, but yes, in terms of the number of patients we're getting treated. Do you, um, is there one thing that you want to do in the next couple years with this drug that, uh, that you think can um, change the narrative somewhat and, and actually give people something hopeful to, uh, to think about? I mean, you, you say it's happening in certain pockets of the country. Um, you're seeing that. But... I mean, on a national level, where people could say, "All right, we've we've got a plan here, right. and it is uh, it is beginning to work." Well, hopefully, this is what the president's commission is going to focus on, which is the drugs are just one piece of of this. There's there's so much that needs to be done. For example, Governor Christie was talking about the success they were having in New Jersey with these care coordinators. You get somebody coming out of a prison or out of an emergency room, and instead of just giving them a prescription for something. Is there a human being who knows Luke's name and can help Luke navigate a complex 
reimbursement environment and physician environment, get them set up with care, get them set up with counseling, get them set up with reimbursement, maybe help them get a job. These things are, are all the software that goes around the hardware of the drug and the, and the, uh, and, and the system. And in, in communities where they're doing that, the outcomes are, are remarkable. And you see this in the drug courts. The drug courts are places where instead of going into incarceration, you move into the drug court. The drug court is, is often rigorously enforcing um, screening, urine screens. They're often living in a halfway house, often getting a job, and just creating a, a, a path toward re-entry into society in a drug-free way that's positive. You know, the, the evidence-based medicine crowd, I can hear them already, you know, complaining about this. It's kind of like single-site, one-off studies, different designs. You know, it's, uh, it, it's not like an outcome study in the global sense like we see, you know, right. other companies do for, say, cholesterol-lowering PCSK9 right, antibodies. This, is, this isn't a real, this isn't, this is outside of mainstream medicine. Sheriffs don't read the New England Journal. And the most of the care... The country spends billions of dollars on, on, on opioid treatment right now. Most of it is done in a setting without a doctor. There's a lot of, there's a lot of counseling-based uh, uh, services out there that do nothing, uh, and their outcomes are not measured, and they're, they're widely re- expected or reported to be dismal. So this is a field that's absolutely screaming for rigorous outcomes-based measurements, but it's not... It's not uh, that's why when you turn on the TV in the morning, you'll see all these ads for various treatment centers. You can go to Florida and sit by a pool. You can go to Malibu. You can go to Arizona. You can. There's all kinds of approaches. And Google just recently, did you see they had to, they they were restricting their ad uh, the ads that people were able to, to put out on Google advertising for these treatment programs because there's so many bogus treatment programs out there. Well, and that uh, that may be one aspect in some of the, the blowback that I think you've seen. I mean, I've seen your advertised Vivitrol, and I think people have looked around and thought, geez, why why is a company advertising? Why do you need to advertise um, an anti-opioid addiction drug? Are you asking that sincerely? Why, why do you think you need to <laughs> advertise? Because awareness of Vivitrol still across the country is approaching zero. It, it's amazing how how... We're such a small company with such a small commercial team. Uh, what we've done is in certain areas where we have a presence of, of prescribers, what we would call a prescription or a uh, physician network that's sufficiently robust, if we do some targeted awareness ads, we can drive the awareness and make patients. What, what drives us crazy is the idea that somebody's son or daughter, or husband or wife dies, and they didn't even know that Vivitrol existed. So unless we advertise and we need to do more of it most people don't know this drug exists because there's been such a tyranny of of this single size fits all approach to treating opioid dependence in the country with the use of of replacement medicines so we don't need to do less advertising we need to do more advertising we've only we've done precious little of you've seen some because you we've done it in 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 manhattan and new jersey area we've done it in the cleveland area in ohio Mm -hmm. because we have a strong presence in ohio and some around the T and transportation here in Massachusetts, but that's it. Not the New England Journal or JAMA. No, no. Because those physicians that you're targeting, that's, not really going to read that's, it, that's, not going to get that's the message. Not, that's not their. That's not their magazine. What um, What else can the industry do? 
um, to put a dent in the problem. This is one of the comments that I saw Josh Sharfstein make in the New York Times. He said, you know, you guys are more interested in your company than actually solving the problem. Now, I'm not sure that's fair or true, but I think... You should, ri- be, quite, you should be quite sure that's neither fair nor true. Well, but the larger point, writ large, I think that is a, a blow that does, you know, draw some blood um, on the industry. And that is that for a long time, industry has been more interested in increasing its prescription volumes than in truly putting a dent in the problem. And I, I can think of a number of examples, um, but, you know, smoking cessation would be one. Um, where, you know, a combination of a pharmacologic intervention and a behavioral intervention, it, 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 data would say that's going to be more effective at helping people kick the habit of smoking cigarettes. Um, but one can very easily fall into a trap where it's all about your own narrow commercial interests. How, how can the industry get out of, that, out of that box? Well, I think they should do very similar to what we did yesterday uh, with the Opioid Commission. I was asked a question about how do we get more people, why aren't more people using Vivitrol? Because detoxification and, 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 and opiate blockade seems like a better way to go than, than opiate replacement. And that's what we've been accused of, of espousing. And my answer on the record, and I'll say it again here now, is that I disagree with it. I, I believe that all patients should have access to all medications. And we should lobby as an industry and as a company for patient-centered policies. I can tell you from having done this a long time, if you go to Washington or any state house and try to advocate for a bill or a policy that favors Vivitrol and Alkermes, it's dead on arrival. People don't like pharmaceutical companies coming and pitching their own book. But when you go in there and say, here's how the treatment system is broken for patients writ large, and here are practical solutions that, that impact the way patients get, can get access to medicines writ large and lead to better outcomes, everybody wants to talk to you. Because it's such a labyrinth and it's so difficult for a policymaker to understand this without some education. If, if the pharmaceutical industry spent more time doing that, teaching how to build systems to lead to better patient outcomes, I think we'd be welcomed by policymakers. Well, I often ask myself, you know, as a citizen, as an insurance uh, premium payer, um, what do I think? Is this, um, should we be spending money on this? Um, is it, does it work? Does it deliver positive outcomes? Um, right. that, that's what I want to know. Right. I, I don't care if some if some pharmaceutical company has to make some money in order for that to happen. Well, of course, that's the way our system works. If you didn't have an incentive, um, you, you wouldn't be here. It, that that in itself is not the problem that needs to be called out. The problem is when you know resources get misallocated and and we don't uh, we spend a lot of money and get very little in return. But here, I mean, with respect to the opioid crisis in particular. Make no mistake, the country is spending, you as a taxpayer, you are spending billions of dollars on it right now because the jails are filled with, the, with these folks who we're, we're treating as criminals and not treating them. The emergency rooms, first responders are overwhelmed by this. This is when you sit down with policymakers on a local and a federal level, this is what people want to talk about because it's, it's, it's choking the system right now. So the status quo cannot prevail. We have to do something different. And that paradigm that we began to talk about how do, you, how do you address this writ large? We have to talk about the top of the funnel, which is prevention. We have to... Fewer prescriptions we, we in just, the first we place. We just need fewer, we need better physician education, prescription monitoring, fewer prescriptions, name it. There's a whole bunch of ideas in the top of the funnel. But in the meantime, we've got a, a bunch of people in this country 
that are costing the system enormous amounts of money. You look at the frequent flyers in the healthcare system and in the criminal justice system is people with serious mental illness and addiction, and we're not treating them. And Alchemy's, I, I'm so proud of, of, the, of the civic responsibility that we demonstrate every day by committing ourselves to these patients at price points that are orders of magnitude lower than what you're seeing in orphan drugs or in oncology. Despite the fact that, 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 that we have to compete against an established status quo that is insufficient for patients, but cheap, and we're fighting it every day. So I, I get animated when, when, when you raise that kind of topic because I believe it's exactly where we've chosen to spend our energies. And I think we're making an impact. Well, and this is the kind of issue that I think has snuck up on a lot of people. You know, it was especially in certain, you know, bastions of uh, elitism, if you want to call it that, elite media, universities. That there, it was sort of happening in rural areas or cities that we didn't really travel in. Um, and, but it's it's here. It's growing. It's real. Uh, people are dying from it. Um, and furthermore, I mean, now you've got this ability to manufacture these, you know, cheap and extremely potent Correct. opioids. You can ship them in an envelope through the U.S. mail that right. nobody would ever detect. That's Your right. teenager could get it. Like and they You'd do. never even know it. And they could drop dead. And it happens. And how, do, how do you enforce that? How do you, uh, how, how do you control that? I mean, it's, it's scary. It is scary, and this is why it's absolutely transcended any socioeconomic or demographic boundaries. It's, it's, it's everywhere. And these kids are dead before the needle's out of their arm when they're injecting fentanyl or carfentanil. And ironically, addicts are seeking these out. It's not like they're inadvertently spiked. This is, people are seeking it out. The other thing that's interesting just from a, a, a public health perspective is that because opioid overdose deaths are a measurable quantity for public health officials there's been a huge effort to reduce that number of deaths and that's why you see so much action about naloxone narcan on crash carts so first responders can revive people reviving somebody who's overdosed and effectively dead is obviously a laudable thing but then just releasing them back into the wild without a treatment plan this is, this is an explicit cry from somebody that they they need help and we know that first responders in many communities are literally overwhelmed reviving people in the community with, with Narcan without, without a plan for long-term care of these folks. Commissioner Gottlieb has said that this is his top priority as FDA commissioner. You, you've worked with him. Uh, you were on the Padufa negotiating team. Um, know him. What, what's he doing? What's he getting right? What still needs to be done? Well, FDA plays an important role, but at this moment, I don't think the central role because we have FDA-approved medications and we have, we have a broken treatment system. So if I could spend my energy anywhere, it'd be less speeding approval of new drugs, which aren't really in development anyway, and more toward breaking a, 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 fixing a broken treatment system and reallocating large amounts of funding already in place to address better outcomes for patients. But I think that within, within the aegis of FDA, I think that, that there is surprisingly very few new drugs in development for the treatment of addiction. And perhaps Alchemy is an object lesson as to why. It's very hard, takes a long time, price points are much, much lower. You have people who make vicious attacks on you for trying to do the right thing because it upsets the status quo. And you can make a lot more money making oncology medicines. There was also a, a long history of the people in the pharmaceutical industry who were marketing the, the opioid painkillers uh, 
inappropriately in many cases. Um, but that is a different story. Uh, that's not been your business. No, and that's not what we do. But it's it's a it's a point that needs to be made, right? This is an I, I contrast this epidemic to the to Alzheimer's disease in the following way. I say Alzheimer's disease is another tsunami we see re- building on the horizon from a from a public health and economic standpoint. But we don't know what causes the disease, and we don't know how to treat it. But it's going to affect tens of millions of people. In this case, in the opioid epidemic, we entirely created this crisis. It did not exist. We, we of our, are entirely of our own creation. And correspondingly, if we had the political will, we could make it go away. And our challenge is: let's do that. Let's 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 make these medicines irrelevant. Let's let's deal with this epidemic. And I think that there's a lot of energy in, in the public health arena and the public policy arena to start making a meaningful impact. I mean, it's one thing to look at death numbers and, and measure your progress that way. And of course, that's important. But, you know, it also, you, you painted a couple of examples here. It ruins people's lives. And I mean, every now and then you see these, uh, these heartbreaking images go around on the Internet of, you know, a mom and a dad who both strung out and they overdose and die yeah. and they leave kids. I mean, and there, so there's just this so horrible I, ripple effect across uh, the society. That, that is... That is the thing that really gets me. It's a critical point. I was I was in D.C. in the Congresswoman's office, and she was telling me about how she had recently been visited by a delegation of grandmothers who have custody of their grandchildren because the parents have died of opioid overdoses, and there's complex legal issues because they're not really yet have they don't quite have the legal authority to do what they need to do. But they're, the, but they're the caregiver for the kids. And she said, what struck me is that these grandmothers are in their 30s. So we're, we're obliterating a generation of Americans. And you're also hearing from an American productivity point of view, there are companies that are not able to move their headquarters or move and open outlets in Ohio and different places like that because they can't find enough workers to pass the drug tests. This, uh, this threatens, like the American dream, our idea of what we are about as a country. I mean, it, it strikes to the very heart uh, of, of the country. So that, I go back to how proud we are of what we've done here, because we've stuck with it. And the evidence that we're making a difference is the fact that people are starting to attack us now. Because there are many people who are just fine with the status quo. And we're not and nor are the people whose, whose loved ones are dying from this, from this disease. And we're going to stick with it. And we're taking the learnings from Vivitrol and we're applying them to what we're doing in schizophrenia because the other area that's as broken as the treatment system for addiction is what we do with serious mental illness. The people, and we've talked about this for years, Luke, when we're at J.P. Morgan, we're walking through the tenderloin, you see the people on the street, yep. these are people with serious mental illness. And they cost the system enormous amounts of money. The amount of human suffering is staggering. And we can do better. And I think the, 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 the combination of medicine and policy and patient advocacy that defines our company now, that's directly applicable to, to serious mental illness as well. It's all these factors together. They, they've got to come together in some kind of cohesiveness. Uh, and... Uh, you know, I don't care if uh, if Alchemies makes a billion or two billion or three billion dollars. I, you know, and if you do, as long as you put uh, a dent in the curve um, and bring down some of those uh, those horrifying statistics, uh, I think that's what 
what people want. It's what I'd, I'd like to see. That's what we're trying to do. That's what we're trying to do. Thanks for being with me here today, Richard Pops, CEO of Alchemies. Thank you, Lou. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music for the show comes from D.A. Wallach. Todd Bennings created the logo. Next on The Long Run, listen to Elias Zarhouni, the executive vice president of R&D at Santa Fe, talk about immigration. He's an immigrant himself from Algeria and went on to a great career at Johns Hopkins in entrepreneurship at the NIH and now in Big Pharma. We talk mostly about science as a global enterprise and how immigrants are essential. You won't want to miss that upcoming episode of The Long Run.